0: a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of peace, of justice, and War, and of of Welcome back to a People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we talked about Jedi Financial Advisors and mustache twirling supervillains. Now in episode sixteen we continue to move through the delightfully meta and utterly nonsensical Knights of the Old Republic comics. See the end of Adaska's dastardly schemes and finally have another canon update. I'm Luke. That's Kelsey. And there's always a bit of truth in legends.
1: We are starting today with the Knights of the Old Republic comic. i um, in the days of hate storyline written by John Jackson Miller. It was published in 2007 and consists of a three issue arc. All right. We pick up the story back with Adaska Jariel, Roland, Mandalore the Ultimate, Admiral Saul Karath, Karth Onasi, Dallin Morvan, Alec, and a host of Mandalorian Republic and Arcanian soldiers on the Arcanian Legacy's viewing platform. The parties are still at odds over everything as the Exogorths begin their test, consuming some of the asteroids near the dying star, Amanoth. Adaska is pleased and reminds his slack-jawed onlookers of the possibilities. Whichever party is the successful buyer will control hundreds of space slugs that can reproduce infinitely, are far too large to defend against or attack, and they can consume whatever they are told—even moons or space stations. Mandalor, having seen enough, states that he will make one offer and only one offer for the creatures, even if it's only to keep them away from the Republic and/or the Jedi. Earlier, Admiral said, Sarcastically offered a senate seat in return for the space lugs, an unprecedented, priceless bargaining chip for Arcania and the Of course, the entire room is aware that Karoth doesn't have the authority to make such an offer, and that even if he did, the Senate would never agree. Hell, the Supreme Chancellor probably couldn't even make that kind of a deal. Mandel, however, has no such red tape to deal with, and makes Adeska an offer he can't refuse. In exchange for the Exegorths, Arcania will become the sole supplier of the Mandalorian war effort, with Arco Adasca ruling the world, subject only to Mandalore. Becoming the lone weapons manufacturer to a warlike people bent on conquest would make Adascorp the most powerful and wealthy corporation in the galaxy. It would also make Adaska a galactic power broker on par with the leaders of the Republic, the Jedi Council, and Mandalore. The room is stunned, and even Karath darkly agrees that the Senate seat pales in comparison.
0: Always comes back to those weapons manufacturing contracts. Every time. Elsewhere, E.G. goes to see the scientist who called earlier and makes a shocking discovery about Daryl's blood, only to be coldly murdered by a shadowy figure who claims to be covering up the truth. Elsewhere on the Arcanian legacy, Zane and Lucian witness the party's bicker from dozens of video screens and Dre realizes that Adaska is dealing with the Mandalorians and must be stopped at all costs, but also seems to know something about E.G. somehow. Just then, Karth arrives with a pack of supplies from his ship, including Zane's lightsaber. He's extremely confused to find Carrick and Dre working together, uh, but is assured it's for a very limited time only. The trio also quickly deduce that both Jari'el and Camper are being used as hostages, with the old offshoot being held in the observation platform high above. Lucien comes to a quick and simple solution that should please everyone, killing Jari'el to take away a hostage, obviously. Uh, Zane and Karth are both mortified, and uh, that's also when Roland steps in and says he'd kill the Jedi before they harm the girl. Karth nearly shoots Roland because, you know, he's a Mandalorian, but is talked down by Zane. The group decide they need a diversion to rescue Dryel and thus have Camber shut down the Exogorths. Roland mentions his spare armor, and Karth decides they should start a fake fight because everybody in the room hates one another anyway. Roland says Mandalore won't fret too much because he would rather see the Exogorths gone than Republic Hands. Zane takes the Neo-Crusader gear... Roland still wears his questioner armor, and who knows, maybe the gang can take down Mandalorian in the war war early in the process.
1: On the main stage, Dalin Morvan tries to convince Karath to broker some deal to stop the Mandalorians, but the Admiral doesn't have the rank, the power, or the wallet to match. Adaska grows more megalomaniacal by the moment. Now, talking about the Mandalorians being vassals to Arcania, but then Karth and a random Mandalorian start a fight, and the Neo-Crusader speaks. Perfect Mandalorian, so Zayn must have been practicing, and both Karath and Mandalore try to halt the flight. But by now, they've pushed and shoved their way to the dais, aided by Zayn's force powers and their nasi being thrown into Karath directly. As Roland throws the Neo-Crusader fighter to the floor, he tells Jariel to move and ignites his lightsaber with Lucian joining in. Alec follows suit because, hell yeah, why not? Lucian orders that both Adaska and Mandalore be arrested for their crimes as the Republic officers get the idea and advance on their enemies. Mandalore believes it was all a trap and orders a retreat. Adaska cowers behind his throne as the room descends into chaos. The Republic, Jedi, Mandalorians, and Adaska's guards and droids are all trying to shoot or fight their way out. Jarel is freed but takes a weapon and goes back to kill Adaska herself. Zane finds Jariel's bracelet and radios to tell Camper they've got Jariel free from Adaska.
0: In the giant ship's docking bay, the last resort begins remote takeoff sequence, shooting out the tractor beams from the inside before departing. LB, who is waiting beside the ship, is sad to see it go. High above in the control platform, the Arcanian scientists lose power to their workstation just as Camper emerges from the spacesuit storage locker with a portable exogorth control panel he rigged from inside the storage locker, and he's wearing a spacesuit, of course. The old offshoot also tosses out a magnetic homemade restraining bolt that places the HK-24 under his control. Camper quickly instructs the HK-24 to destroy the bulkhead of the command platform, allowing him to spacewalk to the last resort. Uh, The ship was activated remotely after Zane and company were able to secure Jiraiel. Destroying the bulkhead also has the added benefit of decompressing and destroying the the control platform. The Arcanian scientists curse him as offshoot scum one last time before begging for help. Camper, however, has no more fucks left to give for the Arcanian purebloods who despise him and seek to commit genocide against his people. He already cut holes in the other spacesuits and leaves the scientists to their fates. But Camper's not finished dispensing justice against the Arcanians for decades of oppression, racism, classism, and general discrimination against the offshoots.
1: On the Arcanian legacy, a badly outnumbered Mandalore is able to escape the fray behind a phalanx of troops, loading onto a shuttle and taking off. The rest of the observation deck is still an all-out battle, though, as hundreds of Republic Jedi Mandalorian and Arcanian soldiers are killing each other. The fighting quickly ends when Camper takes the Arcanian legacy's comm system and announces his resignation from the company writ large. The man, formerly known as Gorman Vandrake states that Adaska's father and grandfather were scum, but says that Argo is even worse, and finally proclaims that the Eighth Lord Adaska will be the last. Suddenly, everyone in the room seems to realize they need to abandon ship immediately, and numerous panicked warriors begin making for the docking bays at once. All everyone except Adaska, who defiantly slanders Camper and his people as animals. Once his comrades are safely out of the observation deck, Camper orders the creatures to attack. The last words Arco Adaska heard, before dying from grievous space slug wounds, were those of Camper, saying, I quit again. With that, at least six Exogorths tore through the Arcanian Legacy's observation deck, destroying Adaska's family and corporate legacies.
0: It beats any resignation I've ever given, so what are you going to do? The Exogorths then set about tearing the rest of the Arcanian Legacy apart as Karth meets up with Morvan and Admiral Carath, who is badly wounded in the battle. They tell O'Nassi to meet at the hangar and to bring Zane, since he's still a Republic prisoner. As they limp away, Karth lets Zane escape, because, as he says, there are too many bad guys and there's no sense in keeping a good one shackled. The, p- the pair split up as friends, and Zane, Jariel, and Roland make it to the last resort's dock just in time to find LB and no ship. Just then, Camper patches through an LB via holovidcom. He's got the Exogors and is flying them out to wild space where he can remove their hyperdrives and behavioral mods and let them live as evolution intended, free amongst the stars. The slugs can't be left for someone else to find and manipulate, or the galaxy will suffer. Jorail is heartbroken. She still thought Camper was coming back, but he says that the Exegors are something only he can make right because of his part in bringing them about and that he's got food for years in the ship. LB, tragically, is sad too. Camper was the member of the ship he was closest with, but his old buddy says that people can be trusted, at least some of them. Before jumping to parts unknown... Uh, camper tells Jariel that neither of them should have been hiding with so much to give others. The old offshoot then jumped dozens of exogorths to hyperspace, disappearing forever.
1: Jariel is reeling. She thinks she drove away her father, gave him to an evil man, and made him leave. Alec shows up and says his ship was destroyed. All the life pods have been jettisoned and Lucian is holding off another wave of assassin droids. Zane then remembers Dre's ship and tries to talk some sense into Jariel. Lucian shows up and declares he'll only take the entire group if Zane agrees to surrender himself for trial in Coruscant. Alec is enraged that he'd be so callous, both to Zane and the others in need of rescue. But Zane agrees, because of course he does. However, Carrick gets another stay of execution when a gunship crashes into the Arcanian Legacy docking bays. Now, who would be so reckless and foolhardy to do that? Well, it's Dob Mumo, one of the Ithorian bounty hunters, brothers who bungled watching Zane's father, Arvin, back in the Ark reunion. He's looking for Zane and was hired by Slisk, the Trandoshan ship thief and cook that was thought dead after the Battle of Sirocco. Slisk jumps out and hugs Zane, but more importantly, confirms that Griff is also alive. Zane literally jumps for joy. It's cute. Slisk says Griff sent them because he's working with the Republic and running the underground resistance efforts on Taurus against the Mandalorians. So Zane, Alec, Jariel, Elby, Slisk, and Dob Mumo escape on the Authorian duo's gunship, the Mumo Willowah. Lucian, having been split up from the group by the ship's arrival, leaves on his ship, but knows that Terrace is the destination. Behind them all, the Arcanian legacy founders and burns above a dying star.
0: I'll be honest, I'm just glad I got you to say Willowah. <laughs> huh. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, All right. Canon alert 16. Because we didn't give you a Canon alert in episodes 14 or 15, we will give you the biggest one yet right now. Also, it works chronologically with the story. So go with it. The Mandalorian Wars have been made canon to a vague extent and incorporated into the long running series of battles known as the Mandalorian Jedi War. Because both the Clone Wars and Rebels animated series had extensive arcs dealing with the Mandalorians, the history and long-standing animosity between the two groups was fleshed out much more than any other Old Republic event. Also, we of course have a near-complete set of Mandalorian Rally Leader armor that was prominently featured in Solo, uh, which would have appeared uh, during this war as well. In an interview in 2017, Star Wars animation producer Dave Filoni discussed his views on the scope of the Mandalorian Jedi war in canon, specifically in reference to the characters uh, in Rebels or the Clone Wars, describing it as a historical event many years in the past. In Filoni's mind, the war is a thousand-year conflict that includes uh, analogous events and battles to three separate military campaigns involving the Mandalorians in the Legends timeline. The first, the Mandalorian Crusades, were a loosely connected series of expansionist conflicts that began following the founding of Mandalore, sometime circa 7000 BBY, uh, it's before the Battle of Yavin, and included a few minor sporadic conquests along the way. The Crusades culminated in 3996 with Mandalorian involvement and eventual destruction in the Great Sith War, which we discussed in Episodes 9 and 10. The second event, the Mandalorian Wars, are the 18-year event that we're currently discussing, which serve as a backdrop for the KOTOR comic, KOTOR itself, and its sequel, The Sith Lords. The third and final event, the Mandalorian Excision, occurs in 738 BBY, nearly 300 years after the fall of the Old Republic. I know it feels weird to us too, but we have to talk about it for science. Uh, Following the Ruusan Reformations... um, And the Republic's disarming in 1000 BBY, the Mandalorians began their own military buildup and started to think about maybe doing some empire building outside Mandalorian space. They were just thinking, though, because they hadn't declared war. However, the Republic and Jedi were so alarmed that they mobilized a special task force that invaded Mandalorian space and preemptively obliterated numerous worlds there, including Concord Dawn, Ordo and even their adopted homeward Ma- Mandalore So the fact that Dave Filoni considers The canon Mandalorian Jedi war to include All three of those events Likely ties it to other large events In Galactic History too, and means it could have Lasted longer than a thousand years as well Though Filoni did say it was simply His interpretation and uh, Left the idea open Allowing future writers to deal with it As they may
1: So this is a canon alert so big it needed both of us So here's what's been firmly established about the Mandalorian Jedi War in canon. Um, You'll notice that much of it is already quite similar to legends already. At some point in galactic history, the Mandalorians formed on the planet Mandalore in the Outer Rim, outside Republic jurisdiction. They were a predominantly human group of clans who followed the same warlike, vaguely religious teachings under the lead of their strongest warrior, who who they dubbed Mandalore. As a warlike people, they began making conquests away from their homeworld, and eventually carved out some space before encountering the Jedi who defeated them. The Mandalorians were fearful of the Jedi and their strange Force powers, so they adapted their technology, war machines, and armor to combat or cancel out applications of the Force, thus evening the odds somewhat. The Mandalorians would battle both the Jedi and the Old Republic a number of times over... At least a thousand years with the Mandalorians winning many battles and conquering much territory in space at various times. During the Old Republic, both their rally masters and Neo-Crusaders were feared throughout the galaxy and their armor was prized among collectors. At some point, the two sides waged a final battle on and above the Mandalorian homeworld, ending when an unknown cataclysm rendered the world a lifeless husk covered solely in white sand deserts and hermetically sealed biomes, biodomes. Though the Jedi were involved in the Cataclysm, we don't know if they did it purposefully, like in Legends, but the battle seems to have replaced uh, Malachor V in canon as the place where the Mandalorians met their climactic and final end. While a world called Malachor has been made canon, and is the site of a superweapon activation that killed thousands on each side, it has been described solely as a Sith-Jedi conflict. We'll discuss that in much greater depth very soon.
0: There is an additional wrinkle that ties the two groups together in canon as well. In the time of the Old Republic, during a lull in their frequent hostilities, a Force-sensitive human Mandalorian was born. The Jedi asked to train the boy and were allowed to do so despite the obvious acrimony. His name was Tar Vizla, and he built a lightsaber called the Darksaber that has a, bl- a black blade and a unique hilt. It served the order... Uh, he served the Order, but obviously kept some ties to his people, as he later became the Mandalore as well. After his death, the Jedi kept the Darksaber at their temple on Coruscant, an act uh, the enraged Mandalorians viewed as dishonorable to Visla and their people. Sometime later, during the fall of the Old Republic, a period called the Galactic Dark Age, the Mandalorians broke into the Jedi Temple and stole the blade, possibly with the aid of the Sith. Misl's legacy was such uh, that an enormous statue of him still stood uh, during the age of the Galactic Empire and the Del- and the Darksaber was used as a symbol of Mandalorian power and leadership after its retrieval. Whoever wielded the blade led the clans.
1: Our next part of the
0: story comes from
1: the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comic, the uh, Knights of Suffering arc written by John Jackson Miller and published in 2007. It too is a three-issue arc. Her characters include the returning faces of Zayn, Jariel, Dob, and Del Mumo, Griff, Slisk, Alec, Roland Dyer, Ronda Tay, Lucian Canilla, Kinderdre, and others. We have some new faces as well. Shell Jellivan, the sister of Shad Jellivan, one of the Padawans that Zane is accused of killing. Prior to Shad's murder, Shell and Zane had flirted openly, but she now believes he killed her brother, so uh, any romantic feelings are probably on hold. Shell shows up here working with Rana Tay to trick Zane. We've joked before, but when Chad died, Shell and her younger brother lost his Padawan stipend, which had been their only means of support after being orphaned. Zane sent money to Shell and her brother at the end of reunion, but he did so anonymously. There's Mission Vow, the beloved twilight companion of Revan from Knights of the Old Republic. She's a child here who assists the Taurus Resistance along with her dipshit older brother, Griff Vow. That's right, another Griff. What is this, a song of ice and fire? Mission helps Zane and the original Griff and is her usual plucky, adorable self. There are the Hidden Becks, a large terrorist swoop gang that tries to help out the poor people in the lower city. And eventually, a system provides muscle for the terrorist resistance. Swoop bikes are like covering motorcycles. Just as in Knights of the Old Republic, the Becks are led by Gadon Tech. There's the Black Volcars, another Swoop gang, and the main rival to the Hidden Becks. They are more concerned with violence and rioting than helping anyone on Terrace out.
0: We also have the terrorist resistance, the armed underground militia led by Senator Heidel Gauravis, and helped by Griff that fought back against the Mandalorian occupation of Terrace. Uh, was initially formed from re- remaining police and locals later combined efforts with the hidden Beck's. They all form a plan to kill Cassius Fett, Senator Heidel, Heidel or hide I don't know, Garavis, uh, the leader of the terrorist resistance and first Republic Senator from the world, a half human, half gem- Hamadrius, male with green skin and white hair due to his old age. Initially elected as a corrupt, easily bribed man with pockets uh, in the pockets of big corporations, he became a changed man after taking office and began to look out for the needs of his constituents. Stayed on terrace after the invasion to help his people on the ground. Jervothalian. Uh, blue-skinned, scrilling male, and ultra-wealthy CEO of Losan Industries. Uh, wants to get in touch with Senator Garavis on Terrace. Lausanne was primarily based on Terrace until pulling off World after the Mandalorian invasions. The company makes bikes mostly. Uh, Cassius Fett. Uh, yep, he's related to Django and Boba. Uh, Cassius serves as the aide-de-camp to Mandalore the Ultimate and has been so integral to the war effort that even Mandalores claim that without him, they could never face the Republic head-on. Fett helped found the Neo-Crusaders movement, leading to greater order within the Mandalorian ranks, and was responsible for the Mandalorians' streamlining war logistics, allowing them to better pillage resources from conquered worlds Uh, for future efforts. He oversaw the siege and conquest of Terrace in 3964 and is now trying to put down resistance on the world. Uh, locations, Terrace and Coruscant briefly twice. And then, uh, our timeline, we are in 3963 BBY with one flashback, 25 years to 3988. Our story
1: Zane, Jariel, Alec, Daub, Mumo, and Slisk arrive at Terrace in the Mumo Willowah. It's just an incredible
0: ship name, the Mumo Willowah with Roland Dyer. I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't know what a Willowah is. Like, I assume it's like some kind of nautical term that I'm not
1: aware of. It feels like a weird bit of slang you'd see left over in Moby Dick. It's perfect. Yeah. So they arrive at They arrive in the Mumo Willowa with Roland Dyer piloting the ship and claiming it is stolen to avoid being shot out of the sky by Mandalorian forces. Before they land, Zane free falls into the lower city from high above as he could never make it on foot despite still wearing the Neo Crusader armor borrowed from Roland. We see that Taurus has somehow gotten worse and still burns under the Mandalorians who are pillaging the world for slaves and resources and fighting resistance efforts. After landing in the Lower City using a jetpack in the Force, Zane is able to avoid patrols and fight off droids, but is nearly killed running into Gathon Thak and 20 members of the Hidden Becks. Fortunately, Gathon recognized Zane before any shots were fired because his lightsaber and red Mando armor matched Griff's description perfectly. Zane and Griff see each other for the first time in months and are both ecstatic, but there is business to attend to first. Despite efforts by Cassus Fett to jam all non-Mandalorian comms from Terrace, Griff is able to use an advanced transmitter and his secret agent code name to contact an unnamed client on Coruscant and let them know that Zane has arrived. Even Gadon is shocked that he can get comms working, they have trouble talking across the planet. As they are speaking, the Mandalorians begin another push with even bigger guns so the entire group falls back to the Hidden Beck's
0: stronghold, the Pit. In the pit, which I'm choosing to believe is uh, is Pittsburgh, um, Zane attempts to heal some injured Becks, but isn't t- terribly successful because he was never a great healer. Uh, Gaden says they are running low on resources and tells Zane they need to link up with the main resistance, but are having issues due to the aforementioned comms jamming. Gadden believes they won't work with with his swoop gang because the resistance is based in the upper city and those wealthy types don't tend to care about the plight of the lower levels, but he's made overtures all the same. Now that they have Zane, however, they will use him as a bargaining chip, turning Carrick over to the constable, uh, working with the resistance in exchange for joining their cause. The young Jedi pleads his innocence, but it doesn't matter to Thak. Carrick's infamy is enough to secure the alliance with the Resistance. Apparently, Zane has become something of a folk hero on Terrace. By their reckoning, if he did kill the four kids, that's pretty powerful stuff, so they shouldn't mess with him. Uh, But if he didn't, then he's on the run from some really bad people, uh, so good luck with that. Um, Zane is back being a prisoner, but at least he's allowed to roam freely. He speaks with a blue uh, blue twilight named Griff Veo, uh, who's been working with the Becks and our Griff, but uh, doesn't learn very well and keeps nearly getting killed or arrested. Uh, the, two then, uh, the two then get a very brief moment to catch up, but really just enough time to learn that when Slisk told Zane that Griff was on Terrace on a Republic mission working with the Mumo brothers, Well, some of those details might have been embellished. Actually, he's been hired by Jervo Thalion, the CEO of Lausanne Industries, for a republic-ish mission to locate Senator Hadel Garavis. See, after Sirocco fell, the chancellor started a corruption inquiry into Terrace's admission into the republic. Turns out Senator Garavis was key in making Lausanne the biggest company on Terrace, and he was rewarded with a Senate seat, but Thalion wants to find his old friend and keep him occupied until the investigation dies down. If they're successful, Griff and Zane will have the bounties from the Padawan massacre cleared. Elsewhere on Terrace,
1: Rana Tay feels Zane's arrival through the force. Rana has teamed up with Chell Jellivan, sister of one of the four slain Padawans, Shad, and former love interest to Zane. Rana and Chell intend to kill him together. Back in the pit, as Zane and Griff talk, a blue twilight child comes up and begins listening. As Zane notices, the girl introduces herself as Mission Vau, Griff's little sister, and tells him she has a secret to show him. Mission drags Zane by the sleeve deeper into the pit, and they eventually begin following Griff who Mission says has a pet. Sure enough, Grimps dumps food in a very large container. Their pursuit is revealed when the original Griff finally catches up to them, dragging his portable comm in a briefcase. Curiously, he's being chased by Brezhik, a top lieutenant for the Hidden Becks, but Brezhik isn't interested in helping, only in killing any witnesses. He says that Zane, Mission, and Griff will die, trying to escape and draws his blaster. The trio is saved by Da Mumo of all people, who is there to protect Zane and Griff and nearly kills Brezhik, lifting him off the ground. He's spared after dropping the blaster, and Mission makes a shocking discovery while looking at the container her brother Griff had dumped food food into. Turns out young Griff and Brezhik had kidnapped the constable's kids weeks before, though they had done it before God told the entire group not to do that sort of thing. Brezhik intended to sell the kids for ransom, but is rebuked by his leader, Gadon and the Hidden Becks resolve to return the children to the Constable, using that as the entry to the Resistance instead of Zane. Carrick's lightsabers is returned and the entire group ride out on their swoop bikes, taking out some Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders for their
0: trouble. Somehow the gang all arrive safely at Resistance HQ and uh, holster their weapons as a sign of good faith. The situation turns messy when Zane, carrying Griff's comm briefcase, is greeted by his old friend and one-time romantic interest, Shell Jellivan. They run to hug one another, but just before they unite, Shell pulls a blaster and fires at point-blank range. Zane is unhurt because Griff's comm briefcase blocked the blaster shot, but the young Jellivan has a chance to finish it. She's standing over a stunned Zane with a blaster to his head, and Ronate, lightsaber drawn, waits nearby, encouraging her to take the shot. Rana proves her own worst enemy, however, as is so often her problem. Upon seeing Del Mumo with the Hidden Bex, the Jedi flies into a rage and attacks him with the two fighting briefly and Del losing both guns to a lightsaber slash. The commotion gives Griff enough time to tackle and disarm a stunned shell, and a large standoff develops between the Hidden Bex protecting Zane and Griff against Rana Tay shell, and the remaining Terrace police force led by the constable. The situation looks bad as hundreds have guns drawn, but Senator Gravis, the first Republic senator of Terrace, introduces himself and attempts to to broker a non-lethal resolution. The
1: senator begins parlaying with Gadon Thak, who claims he and his swoop gangs are not there for violence, and that Zane was attacked unprovoked. Rana is furious, wanting to execute Zayn for his crimes immediately, even going so far as to call him a Sith. Gauravus, trying to calm the situation, implores Rana to put away her lightsaber while Thak, unmoved by the accusation, steps between the two Jedi. It seems clear that, whether the people of Terrace believe Zayn committed the murders or not, they would seem terribly inclined to trust Rana Tay to adjudicate the matter regardless, and she's not helping her case now. Gadon says that Zane isn't the type to kill kids, especially after helping find the constable's missing children. Further, Gadon claims, Carrick agreed to accompany the Hidden Becks and the kids across Terrace for safekeeping, despite knowing he could be killed by Mandalorians or caught for the bounties by a constable. Finally, Gadon gives an ultimatum, saying that they have to freely accept Zane if they want his gang swoop bikes and muscle, while which the Resistance badly needs, Goravas, hearing the evidence, relents and agrees to the terms. The senator, it seems, was not simply lost on the world as many supposed, he actually runs the entire terrorist resistance. He's even got backing and support from the Supreme Chancellor on Coruscant, who sent Rana Tay there to protect Goravas. Eventually, after sternly appealing to the Chancellor's orders, Goravas is able to talk Rana down and she backs away from Zane for now. Shell is distraught, wanting justice for her brother, but the Senator seems convinced Zane is all right and tells her they all need that all the help they can get. Their agreement concluded the resistance dispatched medical assistance to the wounded hidden Beck members at the pit.
0: Griff finally able to meet Gravis tells him that Jervothalian was the one who paid him to be found. The old senator was shocked since. Uh, because he and Thalion had a falling out shortly after the Mandalorian invasion of the Republic began some months earlier in in 3464. Uh, Garavus relays his story to Griff, confirming that Lausanne Industries bought entry for Taris into the Republic and in exchange he was given a Senate seat. Uh, Typical corporate politics, you know. Uh, However, upon arriving on Coruscant, he was apparently truly moved by the plight of his people and his fellow idealist senate members. Uh, When the terrorist riots began following Zane's escape and commencement and Lausanne Industries pulled off planet, uh, Gravis followed Thalion around trying to get him to reverse the decision, even threatening to go public about the bribes. Before anything could be done, the Mandalorians evaded Terrace and uh, he was sent there to lead the resistance. Uh, Griff finally gets a com link to Jervo set up, and the two old friends chat briefly uh, before Del Mumo grabs the senator and confirms that he's ready to cash in the bounty on the old man. Griff is shocked. He thought the Senator and CEO were friends, but now sees that Thalion put out a, a huge bounty on the Senator and simply used him to locate the old man for an execution. Rana Tay, seeing the events, steps in and saves the Senator before fighting with Del Mumo again. Thalion, having seen enough via Calm, activates his own fa- failsafe, a very large bomb planted in Griff's comm briefcase. But the bomb, which would have killed Rana... The Senator, Griff, Dell, and probably much of the Resistance doesn't explode because Shell's earlier blaster shot fried the secrets on the fancy de- detonator Thallian used. They know this because Del Mumo knows this. Del Mumo knows this because he purely, deeply, and absolutely loves explosives. Uh, In telling the story of his transformation, we briefly see Garavis on Coruscant and get get another look at the world as it is changing since the time of the Tales of the Jedi. It is starting to look more distinctly modern and closer to... Knights of the Old Republic style and uh, moving away from the retro-future Egyptian-inspired concrete buildings that uh, are way more prevalent in tales. Uh, we'll, talk a lot of, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to KOTOR, which uh, maybe we should change the podcast to that name. So we should change
1: it. We'll talk about this more when we get to KOTOR. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> no. So in the air traffic above Terrace, <laughs> Roland finds Jariel worried about Zane's mission below and grieving the loss of Camper. Roland offers a way to clear her mind, a Mandalorian method, and, asks, and takes her to spar with Alec. The two fight for a while, with Alec noting that Jariel has highly advanced skills for someone with no formal training. As they are left alone, Jariel apologizes for being so distant since Camper left and the two embrace. Alec then proposes a relationship with Jariel, asking about the Jedi rules against emotional involvement and physical intimacy. Alec says that the strict ideas have gotten more popular since the Great Sith War, but the Order is still divided with no formal decision on the matter. Besides, he says, Force users typically propagate other Force users, so it makes sense, right? He's not wrong, but it's still a shitty pickup line regardless. Jariel seems somewhat interested, but ultimately declines, citing Adaska's abuse of her trust and the loss of Camper um, being Bob before leaving Alec alone with his rejection. Except for Roland, who overheard the whole thing while snooping,
0: of course. Alec takes the rejection pretty well. I mean, the easiest, like the easiest way to to get more Jedi is is to allow them to marry each other. That's that's pretty simple. But uh, it's still not how I would have led, you know, if I was trying to start off a relationship. But you know, what what do I know? Um, on the planet below, we were reminded that Zane and Shell are both just teenagers, or at least in, in their early twenties, uh, trying to figure everything out. As they get a moment to talk, Carrick tries to explain his side of the story, but Shell lashes out. She got his she got her younger brother off world, uh, thanks to the anonymous donation she received, but took the rest of the credits and placed a bounty on Zane's head. Shell is obviously furious because she kind of thinks Zane did kill her brother, but she also feels like Ron is manipulating her and sort of feels like Carrick is telling the truth. Zane is hurt. Uh, he had expected Shell to believe him, like his parents had, and that they would at least still be friends. This seems like a tall order since uh, he is still credibly accused of murdering Shell's brother, but Zane is nothing if not hopelessly naive. Uh, Zane is also emotionally destroyed by the fact that Shell put a bounty on him and is furious at her for not using the funds to get off-world. Finally, Rana Tay shows up, and uh, it's time to relitigate the issues again, why don't we? Uh, The two Jedi argue with Zane stating that each master killed their own student, meaning that Q and Ilya uh, killed Shad, and Rana killed Kamlin. He also mocks Tay's inability to sleep at night due to nightmares nearly provoking her, but she holds off for once. Uh, They are now simply arguing for Shell's approval, but she gets tired of the whole thing and storms out, cursing the whole group. As she leaves, Garavis enters with an idea and a plan. They have learned that Cassius Fett, Mandalore's second-in-command, is using the world as a base of operations momentarily and want to assassinate him the next day. Uh, the comic really says uh, that Fett has streamlined Mandalorian logistics, which, you know, he, he got his MBA, and that's just that's really funny to me. It's, it's the logistics manager now. In the forums,
1: I imagine, in the in-universe forums, there's lots of people typing fiercely about how the Mandalore should have won because real the jedi just study battle but the mandalorians study logistics and that's really the key to victory just <laughs> just imagine the, the transposing the same kind of military historian weirdness and
0: yeah they 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 they're like the uh, they're like the romans sort of i mean they they didn't they didn't successfully conquer quite as much territory but but militarily they're like viewed as the romans were and or are to us you know like oh the, the they had their their wherever they went they built roads you know and like yeah it's yeah just <laughs> fantastic
1: so the plan as the gathered resistance looks on the constable explains how they will use the bomb that Jervoth provided and Del Mumo has since repaired to blow up the old Jedi Tower, which Fett is using as his HQ while on Harris Terrace. The tower is also where Rhana Tay and Zayn both spent at least five years, and the scene of the Padawan Massacre. The plan seems solid, but the group needs same day intel to determine if Fett is still present. Rhonda volunteers her inside knowledge about the tower's layout but declines to involve herself since the Jedi are strictly forbidden from getting involved. Zane volunteers to get recon and report back, but it's a two-person operation, so Shell also volunteers because she knows the building and has some demons to confront there. At this suggestion, Ronate finally volunteers to come tag along as well, saying someone has to protect Shell from Zane or to cover up his incompetence if he isn't dangerous. So the unlikely trio will infiltrate the Jedi Tower the next day while the Resistance plants the big bomb and other charges. As they disperse, Rana and Chell talk privately, and Chell confesses that she's uncertain. The Jedi Master stokes her fear and anger about Zane and convinces her to use Shad's lightsaber, which is at the tower, and his old lightsaber crystal, which Chell has as a keepsake, to kill Zane to obtain justice.
0: The Prophecy of the Five. In episode 13, we talked about the large role that prophetic Jedi visions and their various interpretations have on the story very early in the series the rogue moon prophecy is revealed by the first by first watch circle's member i'll try again by first watch circle members quinelia ronate feln and zamar they predict a sith lord wearing red armor will rise to destroy all that they have built and also see a chilling vision each of their own death The Prophecy of the Five, a vision shown to Crendadre, Dre, which she described to Hazen on Coruscant in 3988, BBY, uh, would become the basis for both the formation and ideals of the Jedi Covenant, as well as their intense belief that the Sith would rise again soon. Uh, Cranda's Crendis saw a vision of a time of great tribulation to come and proclaimed that five key figures would play roles in bringing about the destruction of all that had been built between them. One from the darkness, one from the light, one from the light who stands in the darkness, one from the darkness who stands in the light, and one who stands alone. Unknown to either Dre or Hazen, a young Ronate had overheard this. On present-day Terrace, Rana remembers it, but her thoughts are interrupted as the team is in place and ready to begin. Zane and Shell will have to pass through the streets, uh, with Zane wearing the Neo-Crusader armor and Shell uh, pretending to be his prisoner to make it safely to the tower. Rana, meanwhile, will climb up a maintenance shaft since there's no way to hide her appearance.
1: On the Terrace streets... Zane and Shell make it most of the way before their arguing attracts suspicious Mandalorian guards. Shell quickly kisses Zane and the guards move on to give the couple privacy. She also quickly knees her ex Jedi crush in the crotch after the fact. The two argue a little more and we find out that Zane was going to pursue a real relationship with Shell after flunking out at the Jedi. As the two enter the Jedi Tower, Shell grabs her brother's old lightsaber hilt. But she's having major second thoughts because Zane made a lot of good points on the way over. When they get in, the lower levels are deserted and Zane breaks in in tears remembering his dead friends and the time they all spent there. Shell, who is across the room assembling lightsabers, is genuinely touched by his sadness and can't muster the strength to kill him. Zane takes the lift up while Shell waits for Rana below. Once Rana arrives, she's disgusted with Shell for failing to kill Zane and goes to finish the job herself.
0: The top level of the tower where the Padawan massacre had occurred is likewise deserted, save one soldier picking through plunder. Zane finds out that Cassius Fett pulled out an hour earlier and is on his way to attack the resistance after studying supply patterns and finding their base. Uh, The Mando gets suspicious, but Ronate bisects him before a complaint can be lodged. Uh, Zane frantically warns Tay about Fett's imminent attack, uh, but draws his lightsaber and fights a furious Rana who is lashing out at him in anger. The two duel about the room with Zane using the Neo-Crusader armor's jetpack to take the high ground, ha, before losing his lightsaber and being frankly terrified of Rana's unhinged battle cries. Zane has tried to bring his former teacher back to the light the entire, ta- the entire fight, but she wants nothing more than to end her nightmares and be done with these horrible prophecies. As Zane attempts to escape the room, the Tegreta force pushes him through the skylight, bloodying him, and then slashing at his back, destroying the jetpack. Zane is thrown to the floor from the top of the skylight and wounded. Worse, Rana Tay has both their lightsabers and is prepared to execute Zane. But before she does, we need a quick monologue. This is a comic book after all. Rana briefly relays the prophecy of the Five to Zane and how she wasn't supposed to hear it. She then admits to her part in the murders, but says it was all done to protect the Jedi. Finally, prepared to kill Zane, Rana is delayed again, but this time it's because she was stabbed in the gut by a blue lightsaber from behind. Shell Jellivan heard Rana's murder confession, and finally took revenge on one of the rifle killers. Zane is dazed and injured, but the two hug briefly before realizing they have no way to escape the During the tower. duel
1: in the Jedi Tower, Griff, Gadon Thek, Brezhik, and the Hidden Bex are waiting to set off the explosives, get word that Cassius Fett attacked the Resistance base, wiping out much of their forces and base of operations. The bombing mission now useless, the group agrees to fall back to the pit, but Griff wants to go help Zane and Chell first. When everyone else abandons him for the safety of the pit, Griff tries to mount and ride the swoop bike, despite not being tall enough to operate one well. Gadon, before leaving, implores his old partner in crime to hop on his bike as well, but the Snivian knows that his friend will die without help. Gadon, having known Griff for a long time, wonders why he would possibly care so much about one random kid, but Griff remembers Sirocco, and Zane is different. He tells Gadon that Zane is the type of person who helps others, Even bad people who don't deserve it, not for money or personal gain, but because it's the right thing to do. There are too many awful people in the galaxy to let a good one die in a collapsing tower on a backwater world. Gadon, realizing that he's probably going to regret it, offers Griff a ride to the tower to assist, but they bring the bomb detonator just in case.
0: Hey, more explosions. As Griff and Gadden arrive, they immediately see that Zane is injured and attach a tow cable to the two-seater swoop bike to retrieve the two kids. Both get on the cable, but not before Rana Tay has one last stand to make. As the group takes off, the swoop bike stalls due to the added weight, causing Gadden to work on a power reroute and giving Tay enough time to force jump up to the skylight, nearly catching Zane, but missing and landing on top of the tower. Shell is climbing up the rope while blaster fire goes off all around them, but Zane being Zane extends his hand and gives Rana one last chance. He offers to save her, no strings attached. He doesn't want to see anyone else die in the Jedi tower. The offer isn't even conditioned on her confession. Finally, after everything she had done, Rana sees the folly of her actions and is brought back to the light by Zane's truly selfless act. There's only one small problem. Her hand got stuck in the jagged skylight glass that she had shattered with Zane's body earlier. Rana realizes that time is not her friend and ignites her lightsaber, deciding that severing her own hand was preferable to death. From higher above, Griff only saw Rana igniting a lightsaber near a, Zane, a dangling, helpless Zane and made the split-second decision to save his friend, detonating Jervo Thalion's bomb at the base of the Jedi Tower. As the tower implodes, Rana tells Zane to tell Krenda that she's sorry, giving Zane the Covenant leader's name for the first time. Ronate died on Terrace, surrounded by flames and debris during a Mandalorian invasion, just as the Rogue Moon prophecy had predicted. Elsewhere, Quinilia and Lucian Dre have rekindled their romantic relationship, and both feel Rana's death through the Force, but Quenelia knows it's much worse than that. Zane now knows the name of the Covenant's leader, but only her first name.
1: All right, and that concludes our story for today. Thank you for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will continue our march through the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at PhotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter.
0: And I'm Lucas Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the force be with you.